This podcast is a production of the Berkshire Argus. Important stories fully told. Bill Cook. I basically started the housing trust when I was on the select board. I'm Ananda Timpain. I'm a, a newer to the housing trust. Started what, a year and a half ago. do a pretty deep dive on the cost of living and it's just impossible even if we can buy land it's still very expensive to build something unless it's subsidized they're moving here to be part of the community because of the people who live here there's still hundreds of people waiting for a rental house home ownership whatever i felt the shift in who was part of the community the trust is really well positioned to be able to move at the speed of the market Hi, everyone. This is Bill Shine from the Berkshire Argus. There's no discussion of the economic future of the Southern Berkshires that doesn't have the cost and availability of housing at its center. Trends well underway in the last decade were accelerated by the COVID-19 pandemic. The cost of houses to buy or rent has skyrocketed. Fueled by an increase in properties acquired by part-time residents and others used exclusively for short-term rentals, a failure to keep up with demand via new construction, cash buyers who snap up properties before local working people can assemble financing, and a 0% vacancy rate for rentals. The result of these and other factors has been an unusually large percentage of full-time residents spending more than a third of their income on housing costs, considered the standard for affordability. That's pushed them further away, geographically, from jobs and family as they seek housing that's affordable. It's meant businesses of all kinds are struggling to attract and keep staff, from the service and tourism industry jobs critical to the region, to higher-paid healthcare workers who simply can't find a house to buy. A host of nonprofit organizations, private developers, elected officials, and civic and business leaders have thrown themselves into the conversation and the hard work of preserving the affordable housing that remains while scrambling to incentivize, legislate, fundraise, build, and attack the problem from all sides. In this episode of the podcast, I speak to Bill Cook and Ananda Tim Payne, two members of Great Barrington's Affordable Housing Trust. It's an appointed municipal board made up of volunteers focused on securing funds and investing in housing solutions, from down payment assistance to subsidizing affordable units built by private developers to advancing proposals for accessory dwelling units that can house more people and help those already living here afford to stay. In many communities with an affordable housing trust, the Community Preservation Committee, another local board which each year gives out what's known as CPA funds, raised from a small charge added to local real estate taxes, provides as much funding as legally available for housing to their housing trust. It lets that entity, which is focused year-round on housing, be the clearinghouse for local housing grants to nonprofits, private developers, and for their own assistance programs. As Tim Payne says in our conversation, with its year-round focus on housing, and if given adequate funds, the trust can act at the speed of the market, rather than have to wait for each year's annual town meeting to allocate CPA funds to individual projects. This year, the Housing Trust sought $550,000 from the Community Preservation Committee, 
but was largely turned down. The CPC cited the need for better financial management by the trust. But the debate over the proposal also suggested that CPC members, including Karen Smith, the chairperson, were not ready to give up their authority to vet proposals and allocate housing funds directly to applicants. Tim Payne told the CPC, that's a conversation the broader Great Barrington community needs to have as it looks for effective housing solutions and the best way to leverage CPA funds. My conversation with Cook and Tim Payne is wide-ranging and aims to provide some useful information for that discussion. You'll hear some names and terms thrown around that I want to make sure make sense. Mark Prohensky and Chris Rembold, Great Barrington's town manager and assistant town manager, respectively, are mentioned a few times by first name only. This is a small town, after all. You'll also hear references to the Windflower Inn, a project that recently created congregate workforce housing and that's held up as an example of how to quickly add some housing units without the long timelines usually required. Organizations mentioned include Construct, which has worked on housing assistance, transitional housing, and management of affordable housing developments for half a century, and the Community Development Corporation, or CDC, another local nonprofit focused on housing and economic development. In just the last few years, the CDC has led projects that added nearly 100 new affordable apartments in Great Barrington, at the Bentley Apartments near downtown, and the recently opened Windrush Commons located on South Main Street. My conversation with Bill Cook and Ananda Tim Payne runs just under an hour. And how did each of you get interested in focusing on housing? Oh, well, I got interested on the uh, select board. I thought it was absolutely the biggest need in town, housing for people that work in town. So I realized that in the 2017 town meeting, the town voted to allow a housing trust or accept CPA money, and that made room for a housing trust, but no one had ever done anything with it. So I just looked up what it took to start one and wrote a bylaw and went through town meeting, and now we have a housing trust. And when, when did you say you joined? I joined when Mark and Chris were doing a series of coffee chats, and they did one on housing, and it was still time when we were doing that kind of thing on Zoom. That's how I got connected. I was in that conversation. And I think at the end, Mark said, we have some openings on the housing trust if anybody's interested. And my interest comes from, I grew up here. And um, even before the pandemic, there wasn't an obvious way to be able to own a house and continue to live here. I lucked out the house I'm in. Somebody wanted to sell to somebody local. And because she wanted to do that, I could figure out how to afford it with some angels in the background in the community. But that's atypical, and we can't have a system that's based on that. And I'm the executive director at Railroad Street Youth Project, and every three years or so, we go through a compensation and benefits assessment and adjustment period, and uh, we do a pretty deep dive on the cost of living. And it's just impossible. And definitely for a small business, nonprofit or not, to be able to ensure that the types of wages that even are good wages, they just don't meet the cost of living, which is primarily driven by the housing market. It's not the only thing that's different, but it's the really big thing. And so you noticed challenges in trying to attract staff, keep staff? 
Was it that immediate? Yeah. This, the colleagues I work with, fewer and fewer of us are able to live in the community we work. And Bill, when the trust got started and you had an interest in housing then, what uh, what what was your sense of the housing landscape at that time that led you to think we need to do something else? Well, I think it was desperate at that point. <laughs> it's only gotten worse since then. Yeah, employers in town would say they can't find help. Uh, one of the coffee shops said that they had somebody coming down from Pittsfield for $12 an hour, and that's not sustainable. So it struck me as one of the biggest disincentives for our local economy is lack of housing of any kind, really. Yeah, so how would you define the landscape today, looking at the trajectory from when the trust started through the pandemic to now? When we started out, we had a down payment assistance program. We started out with $15,000 down payment assistance, and we had a few takers on that. And then we had to move it up to twenty five dollars because the, house, the price of houses just went up. And now it's at $25,000 as the maximum amount you can get, 10% of the cost. But that doesn't make a dent in it anymore. We're considering going to 50, but at what point do you, yeah, how much subsidy can you put in? You really need to create more housing. Yeah, I mean, at a certain point when you're talking about something like that, you're talking about shifting the dynamics to allow people to enter the marketplace by really shifting the cost of a yeah. property because the, the market is just beyond what most people can afford. Um, Chris Rembold, he's quoted as talking about the median house sale price. And if you back out of that, what's the income the purchaser would have to have? And it was 140000 The kinds of small businesses that thrive in our community are not paying 140000 Like What the pandemic did was it took everything off the market that was funky and on the lower end. Yeah. And prior to that, I can say as somebody who grew up there, that was kind of what folks like me looked at as like, we'll get that farmhouse that needs work. Mm-hmm. And over time, you'll make it work. And you have a wood stove. And so it's okay that the insulation isn't great when you move in or whatever whatever your plan is to make it work. And um, within the first months of the pandemic, all that stuff was gone. The Grange in New Marlborough had been on the market forever super cool space very weird hadn't moved like that went in the same week with a church that had been sitting on the market in New Mar- in Agramont and the gutted old meeting house next to the post office like all that kind of stuff just went and up until that point that was how maybe the more local folks the more Working income folks were moving into home ownership mm-hmm. was on those kind of funny properties and that they might work on over time or just kind of live with some of the weirdnesses. You know, what I noticed is after 9-11, prices here basically doubled. You know, during yes. the pandemic, they basically doubled again. Yes. So I don't know. You can't keep up with that. So let's imagine 10 years out from now, best case and worst case, because we're going to talk some more about the things that, that the trust is working on and, and all the ideas in the mix and the people in the mix. But you know, what, what happens in five years or 10 years if we don't tackle this? What, uh, what, what does it actually look like? I mean, I think it looks like what we see on the Cape and the islands already. Communities where, and, and this is also true in other resort communities in the country like Aspen. 
You have communities where people who are from families that had lived there forever. Well, I should take that back. Not forever, but for a very long time. I mean, on on the uh, Cape and on the uh, islands, some of them are people who've been there forever. Um, unless they're still in an old family property, are not living in the towns anymore. Aspen, they have worker housing that's close to Aspen, right? Like These to get sort workers of like dormitories in. outside of town. Yeah. That's sort of happened on in. Nantucket and the Cape. Yeah. And, and the, you the know, and Provincetown. Islands too. Provincetown, very few people who are from Provincetown live in Provincetown anymore. And between what's been turned into vacation housing and what's turned into short-term rental and what's the general like the general tourist space they need and then the flip side with that is that that means you also have to bring in your workforce and you know there is nothing wrong with a seasonal workforce but what you lose when that's the only dynamic when you don't have a core community that lives in a place year round um, and you're only bringing in seasonal workers oftentimes from other countries on work visas is you, you lose community. You have a place that everybody comes to, but you don't have people whose place that is and who care for that place and make it the place everybody wants to be. Yeah. The people that are buying houses here now are not going to work in the service economy. And I think in our community, we are lucky. We have a lot of people who cho- who choose here for a second or a third home and we're not the Cape. They're not moving here to be by the ocean. They're moving here because of the community we are. Right. They're moving here to be part of the community because of the people who live here. I mean, we have great arts, but it's not year round. And we have lots of people with second or third homes who are here year round because they want to be part of this community. Yes. Fred Clark, who's chair of the trust, talked about the, the master plan the 2013 master plan and some success in meeting some of those goals. And part of the master plan also laid out a vision for the town. Uh, And I think that's bubbled into various conversations when you talk about housing is what is the vision that's informing all of the different efforts? What's trying to be accomplished and for whom? Um, How how would you describe that? Wow. I don't know. Is there a collective vision? I think everybody's working towards more affordable housing. I mean, Construct, the CDC, we actually are above the 10% cutoff now with the latest CDC project on South Main Street. But there's still hundreds of people waiting for a rental house, home ownership, whatever. All of the local groups are working in that direction, but it's really difficult now. The cost of money, the cost of building. Even if we can buy land, it's still very expensive to build something unless it's subsidized. It has to be subsidized. Is there, with all these different entities, you've got the NGOs, you've got the local government, you've got committees like yours, private developers, everybody doing a piece of it to create more housing, preserve affordable housing. But is there a broader vision that informs it that the community might be engaged with? I think people understand that businesses are having challenges and there are those parts of it. Is there uh, an animating vision other than the fear that things are not good and there are challenges coming. Yeah, I think that more than being oriented towards a future vision right now, I think there's a lot of focus on countering 
kind of just what happened and, and figuring out what do we do with where we are now? Because what shifted in the housing landscape nationally, but we're a place where it was really magnified in the, in the pandemic in those first two years was really, you know, like it was upheaval on top of already going in a challenging direction in our community. And so I think prior to that, the conversation was about getting to the 10% threshold, yeah. kind of catching up on where we'd maybe lost some momentum. Maybe there was some space for like, and then we're going to have to do some creative thinking about what else. And I think that in the period since then, the conversation has been very different. The year after everything got bought up here, I was just watching one person after another move. And it was very sad. And there, you know, some people weren't moving that far. You know, they were moving to Pittsfield, but it meant that they were leaving jobs they'd had down here. I felt the shift in who was part of the community. Yeah. Um, so I think that the focus has been how do we adjust? And the latest CDC project, I mean, that was a really big thing to happen fairly quickly yeah. once it got going and actually move people into housing. Um, You're talking about Windrush? Or, yeah. Okay. And, you know, similarly, Construct moved very quickly on Windflower, which was an innovative, and again, what can we do really quickly yeah. response to create some um, shared housing in for folks who don't know in an old inn. I think everybody's anticipating that that type of model will be helpful. It's, there's definitely a need. There's just a need for housing. We have more people without homes than um, any prior time that I've talked with Construct. Oh, yeah. So just for context, so Windflower will serve a role of um, kind of temporary workforce, uh, people coming so in. The, it's, an, it's not designed to... It's not designed to require temporary status, but it is designed assuming that it will more likely than not be used in a temporary way by people sure. while they find another option. And so people have their own unit, they have a bathroom, but they have shared... Shared common space, shared kitchen. Yeah, okay. They're on the, the property does have some other housing on it, and that housing remained intact, and they kept the people who were living there there. Um, yeah, I think they're using that now for temporary housing for families. Yeah. Bill, you can give a little background on what a affordable housing trust is. and uh, Well, yeah, one of the things that the housing trust is able to do, it's a municipal entity. And so it's part of the town, but sort of like the water department is part of the town. But one of the things we're allowed to do is buy property without going through the RFP process without issuing a request for proposals. It allows us to be flexible enough that if something comes on the market, we can just buy it. We don't have to go through a whole rigmarole. We have to come to consensus as a board. If we agree to buy it, we can buy it. So that gives us sort of a And that a I just want to add why that's really important in the context of our community. An RFP process assumes that there's going to be multiple options that you could assess against each other. Right. We're in a situation where if we can get anything on the market that would be suitable for something, that's great. Yes. And that would go in a price range that would make sense for affordable housing. 
that's fabulous. And so it's really important in our community to have a mechanism that was used in the um, North Plain Road. North Plain Road, right. Is a good example. It was a property that came on the market, which we paid 185000 for, I think, altogether. And that's generated already, you know, $3.5 million of state money, and Habitat is going to come in and probably put in $10 million worth of housing. So, so it gets leveraged. Yeah, that that rapid investment uh, right. to take advantage of the opportunity, and then right. others can come in and uh, take but it from there. We can only do that with CPA funds. If we use any other funds in combination with that, we can't. So we're very constrained by that. We so other funds would be, for example, if the uh, if the town made a, a budget appropriation. Yep. If we uh, tried to use that money along with CPA funding, we'd have to go through the thirty B process to buy anything. That's why the CPA funding is very important. And most of the funding the uh, that uh, the trust has received in the past is from that process, right? Yes. We've gotten some money from the town in the last year. I think it was 175000 So, yeah, So how does that work? Do you think about that as funds that you would spend in support of other things so you wouldn't uh, have to use it for uh, go, go through those kinds of procurement processes? Does... Right. If we For down payment assistance, we could use it. But we also get CPA money for down payment assistance. Um, but if we bought a property that needed some work done, we could then fix it up. And so it would be subsidized. We put it back on the market at an affordable price for income qualified buyers. So that's one way we could use it. So the uh, um, uh, other funds uh, that could potentially come your way, when you look at other housing trusts, you know, how, how do they put the, uh, you know, what are their, yeah. their revenues? Well, so... I, I, well Williamstown basically... The CPC up there essentially gave all the housing money to the housing trust that's up there. Mm-hmm. Lennox does that as well. Yeah. So just for context there, so the uh, Community Preservation Committee has to give some money in three or four different categories. Yeah. yeah. So three. the Community Preservation Committee is the committee that oversees CPA funds, which is the Community Preservation Act. Um, as taxpayers in the town contribute towards the CPA fund. And that fund is used for open space, um, historic preservation, and affordable housing. And it has to be used for all three things at a minimum of 10% of the total fund pot. Beyond that minimum equal distribution and an additional 5% that's set aside for administrative fees, um, Aside from that 10% minimum requirement, then it's at the discretion of the CPC, the committee, to decide what the allocation is beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and just for sort of for folks who don't know about it, so it's it's typically most of their allocation is done once a year in an application process. You go through right. a couple rounds of application, and, and then it has to be approved at town meeting, and then at town meeting, yeah, okay. it has to be approved at town meeting. Um, town meeting can choose not to approve something, but town meeting cannot choose to approve more money for something or something that CPC did not previously approve. Mm-hmm. Got it. And so. then CPC is required to be made up of representatives of other um, other entities in yeah. the towns that represent that same kind of spectrum from housing to open space to historic right. preservation. Um, so that's in our case, we have a member from the Housing Trust, the Parks and Rec Commission, mm-hmm. the Historic Society, yeah. 
in addition to planning board, board and select board. And so they allocate money once a year, and they not only can grant money for housing to, to you, but they can also, and they have, they'll fund individual projects. Yes. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that, taking a, a step back at the landscape of all of the different players and all of the different kinds of projects that are uh, that are happening. So you've got private developers working on things. They might go to CPA, yeah. you know, as a couple of developers have and, and made an argument that, you know, for a, 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 a an investment of seventy-five or hundred thousand dollars, they'll take a unit in something they're building uh, and uh, maintain it as affordable for some number of years. Mm-hmm. Um, the the trust could also make those sorts of allocations, right? Yes, yeah. and does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the you know one of the things if you have somewhere like Lennox that does allocate the affordable housing monies from CPA to their trust to d- distribute that setup means that they can, instead of being in that one time a year application phase, you know, construct could go at any time in the year, for example, to mm-hmm. the Lennox housing trust, if right. a project emerged and it um, was useful to be able to move on it in a timely way. So that's the timing piece would be the right. main difference. Because in, it doesn't have to go through town meeting. It doesn't have to right. wait months and months. It's gone through town meeting and by right. being awarded to the housing trust. Right. So once they've given it, uh, the town meeting signs off, you have the, you know, your charge is to right. invest in housing. The town knows it can only be used for affordable housing. Mm-hmm. So that's. Yeah. I mean, I think <laughs> the other place that then there's a, a difference is. Um, you know, Bill already mentioned the the difference in procurement process, but also related to procurement is the trust is really well positioned to be able to move at the speed of the market. Um, and CPC processes require knowing, like town meetings generally for I mean for for Great Barrington is generally in May, but it's that season for towns in Massachusetts. So it generally means knowing the fall of the year before, what you're hoping to procure, being able to do that application process, and then have it go through town meeting in order to make the purchase. That means having somebody who's willing to sit on a property and wait for you to sell it. Unfortunately, that was the case with the North Plain Road But um, given the nature of our housing market that's a handicap i think um yeah to could be bought and sold twice in that time yeah 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 you know beyond acquiring property that way i know you've talked about i think at the last meeting that you had a joint meeting with the housing subcommittee mm-hmm. uh that is a committee of members of the select board and the planning board and there was some discussion there about the scale and scope of what you could do and need to do and the discussion at one point it was, well, you know, we need a million dollars, you know, to really be doing things at scale. And what, regardless of what the number is, is there a need for more clarity community-wide about how many units are needed? Harder numbers that a plan could be built around, you know, different communities around the Commonwealth, aside from a formal housing production plan, uh, some of the challenged communities like Nantucket and others will have a year-over-year plan with some specific priorities that they then uh, whether it's their political leadership or others are advocating for, is that something that uh, that would be helpful if uh, if the community and those working on housing organized around something more specific, 
or uh, you know, does it work this way that it's you know very ad hoc? Uh, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom and it'll it'll move everything in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, we we know we all know what the need is. It's a question of how to build more housing. Well, I mean, I think it yes, it's how to build more housing, but. I mean, the trust is really looking in a multi-layered way at the issue. And it starts with the emergency assistance program that you talked about earlier, Bill, that the first thing is let's keep people in housing. That's part of this. Let's keep people in housing. Um, In the trust's work, that looks like emergency assistance. But there's other things that could look like in the community. Um, does our community need a program for landlords that helps them do repairs in order to keep rent at existing rates? I don't know, but like that's the kind of thinking. There's additional thinking that could happening. From mm-hmm. there, we go into the down payment assistance program. And again, yes, if we are really thinking of it on a town basis, then what we're doing is about what we should be doing. And we we might need to tinker with the amount and by tinker, you know, tens of thousands. Yeah. But if we started thinking regionally and moved outside of the government framework, you could build a regional program. And by that, I mean like South County, where let's say, you, don't worry about where it comes from yet. But let's say you have a fund that has half a million to distribute a year. And its job is to distribute that by basically buying down the cost of a regular house to bring it into more normal range for working people. And by doing it regionally, let's say you're going to do that for five families a year. Yeah. That's not bad. And by doing it regionally, you can move at the pace of the market because Great Barrington's only going to have a house that you can put within reach with $100,000. Yeah. Even that's a stretch. Like once in a while. But will five of those come up on the market in all of South County in a year? Probably. Um, so I think that there's room to expand like the the nuggets of ideas into bigger creative ideas. You know, we're we're knock on wood, we'll see what happens at the <laughs> trust meeting this month, um, going to approve a ADU pilot program. You know, this is an idea that's about the it's about um, adding small units in existing residential properties and stabilizing the homeowner because there's so many people who are just getting by in Great Barrington somehow month to month with the types of mortgages that we're looking at. And if we could add a little bit into the mix that makes it possible for them to add an ADU it's probably going to be like a studio. Sometimes it'll be a one bedroom. But that ADU, sometimes it'll be a tiny house. Um, but that ADU ends up being affordable housing. It's restricted for 10 years as affordable housing. And it's rental income that stabilizes a family. Um, you know, I do think that there's a larger conversation that's happening that's valuable in the town um, that started in town meeting last year about how much when we're looking at grants to developers, either private developers or nonprofits, mm-hmm. what's the ratio of money to years of restriction? 
And what's the relationship of the amount of money to what percentage of, of area median income it's restricted to? So I think that that's, you know, that's a place where I'd say, yeah, we're all trying to figure that one out. We're not sure. I'd like to see us look at treating nonprofit housing grants differently than private developers doing similar to our down payment program. I'd like mm-hmm. to see that the town, whether it's through the trust or other places, um, l- look at those as, well, what if instead of a grant, it's a low interest loan? So that be, could become a way that you're feeding some money over time back into investing in affordable housing. Yeah. Um, and then we've talked about kind of the last part, which is the procurement part. I think at this point, I just wonder if there isn't a bit more energy around there's all these other things we should do, and it could be just a bit simpler. Like I think, Bill, you you talk about a few things that we could do with taxes that could make a difference. Like, you know, there's an easy one with the ADU project, but... Right, which would be essentially if someone adds an ADU, that doesn't get assessed in the property value. So it's exempt for however many years we can do. However many years it's supposed to be affordable. And that would make a huge difference because you're not paying additional taxes. The town doesn't really lose anything. It just doesn't gain that extra mm-hmm. couple of thousand dollars or whatever for the ADU. But you know, it's interesting to hear the ideas about keeping people in their homes. Um, There's a lot of focus on, you know, we need more housing um, while at the same time people are getting squeezed and having to to move out. You know, a couple of the other uh, communities that I've looked at, uh, and I'm sure you're well aware of of some of those programs, whether it's a land trust model where, you know, the investment is to buy the land out Mm -hmm. from somebody's house, basically, and uh, reduce the carrying costs there, or some kind of affordable or workforce deed restriction uh, where some communities have for... Um, you know, 15 or 20 percent of the value of an existing house. You're not waiting for stuff to come on the market. You know, you buy a, a, a workforce deed restriction that says whoever lives in that house has to you know, basically be you know, uh, a part of the workforce. Um, you know, what do you think about you know, those kinds of things which haven't really been in the mix? You know, for example, like a deed restriction program, could you use directly allocated money for something like that? As uh, you know, if the if the town had a million dollar budget line that said you know preserve housing with this. Uh, could you buy deed restrictions without having to have some kind of a procurement or RFP process that you typically couldn't do with that uh, with that kind of money? In theory, that is that that is the role of and purpose of the trust. Mm-hmm. Um, my guess is that the procurement piece d- brings us directly back to CPA, CPA funds. Right. That's when it's those funds in the hands of the trust that give us a different procurement mechanism for our community to utilize. Is there any sense of of the other affordable housing trusts across the Commonwealth, how many of them are funded at close to or at the max from uh, from CPA? I don't really know. I always look to you, Bill, for intel on the rest of the Commonwealth. (laughs) Yeah. um, I don't have a real number on that. It's... It's all over the place. Okay. 
let's talk a little bit about um, just the way the public engages with these issues. You know, it's mm-hmm. no surprise to anybody that there's a housing crisis because most people are feeling it mm-hmm. uh, and they're aware that there are a lot of folks working on it. What would help bring the public into advocacy, whether it's lobbying or it's pressuring their local elected officials and others to, to make this more of a priority? Is, that, uh, is it doable? Is it needed? I don't know. I think the business community has been applying some pressure because they need people to work in their businesses. I think everyone's working as hard as they can towards it and trying to figure something out. It got a lot more difficult in the last couple of years just because cost of construction and cost of money. I do think a missing piece is for people to see a way out. Um, I'm thinking about the recent efforts to move forward um, the real estate transaction fee in Great Barrington around the time of the special uh, town the special town meeting. So it's my understanding is this idea is not off the table. It just didn't get advanced in for that special town meeting. And just for, for context, that idea would charge a... Uh, for, uh, I want you to explain what Yeah, so that idea would be on properties over X amount. And I think the original proposal would be sales, uh, property sales of a million, or so a million and one dollar. There'd be a 1% fee that was shared equally between the buyer and the seller. So they'd each have 0.5% fee that in that proposal would be a way to fund the housing trust, um, you know, without saying one th- yes or no to that's a great proposal or not. What was interesting to me was the conversation that emerged around it. People who feel strongly about the need for affordable housing, people who feel strongly about the role of the trust in that people who might also be advocating for more funding for the trust didn't see that as a good mechanism for it. Um, and you know, I had one one voter reach out and said, well, the, that's what the CPA money should be doing. Right. Um, so I do, I think things get swirly and it's very easy to be like, well, this other thing should be working this other way and then we'd be able to get some traction. And I think that kind of, Lack of clarity comes from not having a picture that shows us a way out of the pretty stuck place we are as a community. What, what does that mean? Describe that uh, when you say a picture. Yeah, like to be able to say it's not, you know, like nobody can say like if we just funded the trust at a million dollars, I can see how that would mean right. my problem with not being able to find a rental would get fixed tomorrow, in a year, in two, two years. Like, there's yeah. a lot of abstraction and a lot of details and a lot of conversations that are valuable, including like how do we fund the trust, but also what came up at the other the other night's meeting was a conversation about what's the what else could planning, the planning board be doing in all of this. Yeah. Um, and the planning board is – I think the planning board's been doing great work. Been I mean, doing a lot of great work. Opening but up zoning and all that. They, ca- they can't add housing. Right. Um, you know, we're, we, we as a community, we are yeah. not large enough 
to just fund the housing we need. So even when Bill or I talk about a thriving affordable housing trust that could really start to build some momentum and um, have year-to-year impact that builds on each previous year, if right. that's a, I do think that's probably a budget of around a million a year. But even that, that's not going to be that the trust builds the housing we need. Yeah, it's we're not the, developers. Yeah, right. It's that you could you start to have a mechanism that can seed some of the housing we need. Um, the types of grants, and I, this is not specific to the trust. I would say this is true for CPC as well. The types of grants that the town can make through either body um, to a developer to incentivize including affordable units on the scale of what it costs a developer to develop a project, it's not even an incentive. No. It just like all it really does is it it makes it possible for a developer to say, well, I could do this for one, maybe two units. Yeah. And we and those are two more units or one more unit that we don't lose. So great. But we don't, we're not going to ever have the kind of money where the money by itself makes it possible to just change the problem. And how about, re, you know, I think you mentioned sort of regionally. Um, so you, how, how do you bring in other communities to, to carry the load? You know, funds in the trust in Great Barrington can only be spent on housing in Great, in Barrington. Great Barrington. Yes. That's so true. is there, are there any experiments? Is there or sort of regionalizing funds from multiple, you know, Egremont now has a, uh, a municipal housing trust, uh, well, the sort of scattered West development. Yeah. yeah, and I've had some conversations with Smitty and Senator Mark that are kind of more in that vein, and I think that, and I think that kind of thinking is happening. And um, Senator Mark, particularly, I think, is ta- make, taking the lead in some of that. I don't know. I haven't had a further conversation more recently, but. Just like looking at creating pathways and vehicles to be able to work more regionally. Um, And then on the other hand, you do like already we have organizations that do work regionally. Construct works regionally. CDC works regionally. And they and they both work with uh, the Berkshire Housing Authority. Um, So. (laughs) It's funny to me because on a community level, in a lot of ways, there's more work happening that's regional. It's really just once you're into the municipal mechanisms that you're bound mm-hmm. by town. And it would be interesting to, you know, were there mechanisms to link, do cross town linkages that would be interesting. And interesting. We, we see how our community felt about regionalizing regional school districts. So it also might not be the way to go. Right. One one piece of legislation, <laughs> which I think is moving through, is to make any money that's in the Affordable Housing Trust exempt from 30B so that we could use town money, we could use individual donations. Um, I smoke, spoke to uh, Smitty about that over the summer, and apparently it's pushing through. And just describe th- what 30B means for the uh, it's uninitiated. A, it's, it's procurement uh, for municipalities. You have to issue a request for proposals for what you want. And it has to be all submitted and gone through. And then it's a process. So it doesn't align with the real estate market. No. Not so much. No. Well, let's talk kind of blue sky here. You know, if you're you're uh, you know king or queen for the day, what would be the the most valuable 
things that could happen over the next year. We suddenly come into $100 million to build housing. <laughs> that would pretty much solve it. $100 million. It's not that much, really. Is there a number of, you know, we need 300 units. We need, you know... I think a, we could these, use 500 units of housing today. They'd yeah. be filled in no time if they were affordable. And really at this point, I mean, our business is affordable. And the area median income for Great Barrington is actually quite high at this point. Mm-hmm. And the types of proposals that we're seeing are reaching out of affordable. So I think that the need is really from reasonable rentals for somebody who's working at the coffee shop or working in a restaurant that really important parts of our economy that drive why people want to come here. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need spaces. We need it to be that somebody doesn't have to have a roommate their whole life. But we also need workforce housing that might be just, I mean, at this point, it's at the high end of affordable and the low end of market rate. You know, if you look back at Housatonic when it was a textile mill, a lot of the housing there was built for workers at the textile mill. And we don't have a core business like that in town, really, that's big enough to do that. I don't know how we can replicate that. But that happened in other parts of the country, too. Worker housing was built because people couldn't afford a house otherwise. So the challenge, it sounds like, just for argument's sake, let's say there's you know 500 units that could be filled with affordable and, and workforce housing, and the planning board is doing some work to modify zoning to try and incentivize mm-hmm. where it can. You've also just got the challenge of where to put it, which I imagine yeah. sort of bumps into that conversation about preserving or transforming what's here now. I mean, I think people often assume that it does. As somebody who grew up here, I don't know that it has to. I mean, the the housing that changes open space into housing space is not this housing. Those are large homes. At this point, they're all a million dollars at least. That's what's going in when a field is turns from agricultural use to housing use. What's getting developed in town for housing are, let's not talk just affordable housing, but are places in town that are housing or could have had more housing. So what Ian has done on Railroad Street, what will happen with the Mahawi block building um the so marble about, so, so ian rash um yeah you're talking about on railroad street is a 47 railroad which yep. was yeah was uh, new units there had not been or very many apartments there before yeah uh, in the mahawi block there were some units but there will now be more but at a, at a higher price point yep. yep the marble block that actually the trust was going to fund that but then we funded a different block yeah um even the BCC building. These are housing projects that are not taking open space. The um, the building on Maple Street that was a nursing home. Right. We're really talking about revitalizing, um, putting much needed care and work into buildings. To me, that opens a vision of our community where a thriving community that has the housing we need 
means every neighborhood. You talk about this often, Bill. Right. A vision that every neighborhood has housing across the income spectrum. Um, that's one of the things. Like I don't, you know, I don't think that the ADU pilot proposal is suddenly going to make it for an explosion of studio apartments and solve our housing crisis. But if it works incrementally over time, it will add small units into existing neighborhoods and keep families in neighborhoods that they might not be able to stay in otherwise. Mm -hmm. So I think that kind of thing makes me excited. And I don't think that we will get to some of those really great projects that are happening in town that aren't primarily affordable, if affordable at all. We're not going to make them affordable or make them mixed affordable market rate by incentivizing them with $200,000 grants. So that to me is an interesting conversation. How do you get there? How do you get to a place when we get to preserve a building that has been a core feature? Like it's wonderful the buildings that are getting preserved and having life breathed into them and in, in beautiful ways. I, there's nobody I would trust more with a redesign and restoration of the architecture in town than Ian and his crew. What makes it possible for developers like Ian to just build into their projects affordable housing? Because it's never going to be by incentivizing it with enough grants. No. So that's an interesting conversation to me. As much as it, as much as what we're doing, that's really just only focused on affordable housing units. So, so are you talking about um, are you talking about inclusionary zoning, where they would be required uh, on one end? Uh, I mean, that's one model, and mm-hmm. there's been some conversation about that apparently, and some learning about it. And so, I'm not in a position to say that's a solution that works, but. Let's find the solutions that do work. And if that is that one, great. Let's do that. Um, yes, there are people who say that would kill development in town. Oh, to require, say, 20% affordable units. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's interesting. You know, the, the response last year, so just to, to give people more context. So Ian Rash, who's a, a, a very busy local developer, uh, Craig Barnum is another local developer, both working on downtown projects both expressing interest in reserving at least a couple of units in their renovated buildings at at affordable prices for some period of time. Last year, uh, Ian went to CPC. They recommended some grants of the kind that you were talking about. I don't remember the exact amount, maybe $100,000, $125,000 per unit towards an affordable affordability restriction for 10 years at 100, I think 100% AMI. Um, And a town meeting uh, in Great Barrington, uh, people were very resistant to it, and they voted it down. And yeah. they um, didn't think any money should be going to private developers for affordable uh, units. So Ian did not reapply this year. Craig Barnum is now applying for the Marble Block, uh, the same argument, that uh, it's cost-effective. Um, so what, what I think what, what you were saying is that's probably not enough. Um, it's not going to add enough affordable housing to take that approach, even though it's useful to have a unit or two. That's not a policy that will get where you want to go. And it also only lasts for 10 or 15 years and then goes away. Were there other specific things that were uh, uh, to try and incentivize that construction? If you want to incentivize construction, I mean, the thing to look to is that it worked with ARPA money. And it worked with ARPA money because it was big 
amounts of money. We can't do that on the type of money we're talking about. Um, you know, so who's a tonic will get affordable housing in the school building, the old school building, because of ARPA money. And that's great. That project, the town kicked in, was it six or seven hundred thousand dollars, something like that? I that was something like that. And then that also, um, ARPA money also was part of um, what made it possible for the windflower to happen very quickly. Right. Although I, I don't think it was necessarily on that scale. So short of a pandemic every few years, where <laughs> there's a big I mean, rescue it, plan. It points uh, to like the the part, you know, part of the conversation maybe does have to be state and federal um absolutely has to be yeah we're a town of seven thousand people <laughs> we're not going to come up with the kind of money you need to come up with yeah i gather that's that's where the tension right that the the state money and federal money that's available has so many different kinds of requirements and the the types of financing that, and all the all the moving parts of you know right. uh, how you do those projects how long they take uh, rules that you have to follow on uh, on how you fill those buildings. Yeah, and my understanding is that what's happening federally with those kinds of funds just hasn't been updated in in a very very long time, and that that is part of the bottleneck. Yeah, we need we need everything. Um, I was also thinking along with the ADU thing, if we could buy property on the low end of the market. It's a single family and convert it to a three family. Then we have, you know, more units. It would still have to be subsidized by somebody, the construction of the thing, but it could also be deed restricted. And just for reference, when you're talking about that kind of property, the deed restriction is in perpetuity. Right, permanent. So, Because you're talking a lot of subsidy. So let's wrap up with a, a look at the next six to twelve months for uh, for the trust. So the uh, the CPC process will go forward over the next uh, the next month or so. Yeah. Uh, and what um, what are the programs that are in the queue for the trust for uh, for the next year? Well, we have issued an RFP for anything having to do with affordable housing. Send us your ideas. Uh, dev- developers. Not limited to developers. Uh, well, the RFP, like the RFP, would be for it could be a private individual developer or a nonprofit, right? Um, and that's for an allocation of funds to help them with the project yes. in exchange for some kind of affordability yes. restriction. Right. We had yeah. uh, a couple of respondents already. One of whom we've funded for uh, two two bedroom units. So just for. For clarity, that kind of a process, you could use a, a budget allocation because you're doing an, an RFP process. I believe yep. we could. Yes. Yeah, correct. Yeah, so the, it's the same kind of tiers of things that we've been working on. Emergency assistance, rental assistance is, is available on an ongoing rolling basis, and we partner with Construct. So yeah. our funds are distributed in, by Construct as part of their wraparound services available. Yeah, we pay them a management fee to, we give them the money, they yeah. make sure it's distributed correctly. Um, we, as Bill said earlier, we just approved a 0% down payment loan for a, a property that actually was one we had procured as well right. on Grove Street. So that program is also there available in live. 
this month will be concluding our many month long conversation debate um, and work on the ADU pilot project. And hopefully that will pass, which will mean we'll be sometime in the spring issuing an announcement for applications. And just describe that briefly. Sure. So this is a program for residents of Great Barrington who are homeowners who could put an ADU, an accessory dwelling unit, on their property. So what could that be? That could be, and under Great Barrington rules, that could be a tiny house. That could be converting a garage into a studio or a one-bedroom or putting a second floor on a garage to do that. Um, it could be, you maybe you're somebody who lives in something that used to be a duplex. You could apply through this program to convert your house back into a duplex. And then the housing that's added, that accessory unit that's added, is now going to be affordable housing. And it's a commitment of 10 years it will be rented to people who are income qualified for affordable housing. And there'll be an outside organization like Construct that manages that verification. And then the trust for those, for applicants that are selected, we have a very rigorous <laughs> scoring uh, rubric for how applicants will be yeah. selected. It, but among the considerations, one of the main purposes is to be stabilizing existing homeowners who might be finding it a bit difficult to meet the cost of living here. So it's a pilot so that we can see what's needed, what works, what doesn't. So ideally, if we're getting it right, and if this is what is needed, the awards will go to families and homeowners for whom this is going to make a financial difference. And then it's structured that 50% of the award happens at the time the contract is signed, and then the remaining 50% um, is paid out as costs occur in the building phase. But this this is for all the people who are already coming up with really creative ways to somehow make it work Mm -hmm. (laughs) to stay in their funky house and who's a tonic or whatever. Because there's a lot of people in all of Southern Berkshire, but definitely in Great Barrington, who get very creative so they can continue to be part of this community. And so this is, can we make it a little easier? And a question on municipal support for all of these different efforts. As you mentioned, you know, Great Barrington has essentially one person, Chris Rembold, who wears uh, a closet full of hats and trying to do quite a bit. Very well. Uh, uh, is there a need for a, you know, an allocation for a housing director or for someone that, uh, whether it's Chris or somebody else, but specifically to work with all of these organizations that are trying to, uh, to move the ball forward? I mean, this came. Oh. There, this conversation came up around budget time last year, um, and I noticed it didn't make it into the budget. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how much value that would add, personally. But um, I you know, I know, I know that there there are people outside the trust that um, you know. I've heard this idea advocated in other places, um, having some kind of position that is about that su- that supports navigating all the pieces. I do think we're st- we're at a point where we're starting to hear when ideas come up, one of the things that comes up alongside them is do we have the staff capacity? And so I would say as um somebody who runs an organization, 
when that starts happening repeatedly around something that is a real need and a real function of your organization, that is when you do have to start to look more closely at what's really missing from a capacity side and what's the best solution. Um, Because it does sound like it's possible we're getting to a point where if we do much more, it definitely will be be beyond what one person can manage. And I hate to see us limit ourselves and say, oh, well, we just can't do more then because our town structure is we only have one person. Could, could the trust itself, you know, let's say you get to a place where there is, is a larger, uh, much more substantial allocation or funds from multiple sources to the trust, could the trust have its own staff person outside of oh. municipal government? <laughs> right, is now that, that's are, Chris. Or, uh, exactly. Are there other communities where they have a, where their trusts are? Uh, Not in communities this size, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the percentage of a full-time position you'd need for a community this size would be relatively small. So it would really make sense only when you were looking at as part of a a position that, you know, maybe also supports the planning board or. um, For a little more context. So everybody who serves on the trust is a volunteer. Yeah. Yes. And if you have things to to administer, you might have a, a, was it the, the construct, you essentially pay them. To, to exactly. manage a yeah. particular program. And it's important to, do, like, you know, with that, it's important we're doing that um, because you really can't have, um, you really can't have the trust do that level of work, not just because we're volunteers, but because um, we're a public body. And so if somebody is applying for emergency assistance, the kind of information they're providing in that application process does not belong in the public. Right. So um, things that would be subject yeah. to the public record. And so like yeah. similarly with mm-hmm. the ADU pilot, that's why it, we will also make sure we bring in an outside administrator so that so that they, we can have an application process that asks questions about how tight things are for you financially. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't become public record. Right. Same is true with the Habitat projects. The Habitat projects. You know, they have their own screening um, and all that. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks very much. I yes, enjoyed thank uh, you. learning about all this. That was Ananda Timpain and Bill Cook from Great Barrington's Affordable Housing Trust. You can learn more about the trust and its projects on the web at gbhousing.org. I'm Bill Shine, and thanks for listening to the Berkshire Argus podcast. Find more episodes on Apple Podcasts or at our website, which is, not surprisingly, BerkshireArgus.com.